Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, the Bibles in front of you are available. Genesis is the very first book, just a couple chapters from the beginning. Um, As always, if there's anything that you have questions about in this text as we work our way through it this morning, um, you can text this uh, number. It's an anonymous text line and uh, ask a question. And at the end of the sermon this morning, I'll, uh, uh, we, can, we can work, some of the, work through some of those questions a little bit. So we, we took some time this morning looking at Afghanistan. We've, we've probably all seen the news clips, heard the reports. Um, maybe some of us have, have, have wept for the people. We also saw recently the devastation in Haiti, different kind of evil, natural evil, but thousands of lives lost um, right after their government was overthrown and, and then more natural disasters to come. And it kind of makes you ask the question, why is everything so broken around here? Genesis is the story of beginnings. We've we've talked about this over and over through this book. The source of the things that we believe to be true about the universe start in Genesis. And this week, we're going to begin the first of three stories that Moses shares that describe why there is so much brokenness in the world. Now, if, if I ask most of you why there is sin and death and evil in the world, you would probably point to this chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. We call it the fall of humanity. And that's true. We're going to go through that. But if you asked a first century Jew what's wrong with the world, they would have said, well, Genesis 3, of course. But then they would also have said the sin of the watchers in Genesis 6. And they would have said the Tower of Babel and the disinheriting of the nations in Genesis 11. And so keep in mind that we're going to get a piece of the puzzle for why there's so much wickedness in the world, but we're going to get more information as we go through this book as Moses continues to share why everything is so out of control. But today we've got this story about the man and his wife and this snake. And that brings up a question. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Moses doesn't tell us much about the serpent. And I think that's important to recognize. Moses doesn't feel the need to explain what's going on here because he assumes his audience knows what he's talking about. But for us, thousands of years in the future, in a completely different cultural context, we have a lot of questions. Why is this snake talking? That's a good question. Why doesn't Eve seem bothered that this snake is talking? Who is this serpent, and how does he know so much about the commands of God? 
So before we get into the meat of the passage, we're going to talk a little bit about cultural context. What would the Israelites have understood about the serpent? Moses tells us that this snake is a wild animal. The word is nakash in Hebrew. But as we look at the passage, it's obvious that it's not just a wild animal. It has to be something more than that. It does non-snake stuff. And later on, the snake is cursed by God in non-snake ways. So to figure this out, we have to do a little bit of um, language study. Words have what are called semantic ranges. So it means one word can have several meanings depending on the context. If I say running is a good form of exercise, running is a noun. If I say the engine is running on diesel, running is a verb. If I say running paint is an eyesore, running is an adjective. This word, nakash, if it's a noun, it means snake. But if it's used in its verbal sense, it means to divine or communicate with the supernatural world. And if it's used in its adjectival sense, it means bronze or shiny. Most of the time, when you're communicating, you have one meaning for a word in mind. But sometimes, especially in artistic uh, speech or language, and Genesis is very artistic, we use what's called a double or a triple entendre to communicate, which means a word has more than one meaning. Here's a picture of an album cover. Uh, this is Rush's album, Moving Pictures. Who's a Rush fan? Yeah, Trevor, only one, that's fine. So, so moving pictures shows a moving company moving pictures. But it also shows some people weeping because of the moving pictures. And if you flip over the album cover to the back, you see that there's a film crew shooting a moving picture of the, film, of the moving company moving the pictures and the people being moved by the pictures. This is a triple entendre. And it illustrates what I think is going on in Genesis chapter 3. This word serpent is packed with information. And it's packed with information about what Dr. Michael Heiser calls throne guardians. I want to read you a passage from Isaiah 6. Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And the one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. The word seraphim means snake. It's a different word than nakesh, but it's just another word in Hebrew for snake. In Numbers 21, we read, the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The word poisonous is seraph and the word snake is nakash. So we see that these two words are used to describe the creatures in numbers that attack the Israelites. And back in Isaiah, we see supernatural snake beings that fly and can speak in the presence 
of God. Again, Mike Heiser calls this a divine throne guardian, and this would have been familiar to the Israelites who had just come out of Egypt. This is a picture of King Tut's throne. The side, the arm of his throne is a snake with wings. And then there's a picture of the back of the throne, four more snakes. All throughout ancient Middle Eastern culture, the idea that snakes have are supernatural beings that have a role in guarding the king's throne would have been well known. And I think the reason Eve isn't surprised that the snake is talking is that it's a normal part of her experience living in the presence of God with his supernatural family that works around his throne. Remember we said that the Garden of Eden is is the place where God has set up his outpost in the world. And so Eve probably sees the snake and a whole lot of other crazy stuff all the time. And I think this is also why the serpent knows a lot about what's going on. So then the question is, is this snake the devil? Is it Satan? And to be honest, the passage doesn't tell us. It just, it just doesn't have any information about that. But later on in John 8, we read Jesus say to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. And in Revelation 12, we read, So the great dragon was thrown out of heaven, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels with him. So when we get into the New Testament, we clearly see, we get added information that this serpent is God's adversary, the one we would call the devil or Satan. So how does the serpent deceive. Let's look at verses one through five. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the tree, the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. The serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what Moses tells us is the serpent is cunning. And the interesting thing is that's not usually a bad thing. Proverbs 14 says the inexperienced one believes anything, but the sensible one, same word as cunning, watches his steps. Proverbs 22 says a sensible person, a cunning person, sees danger and takes cover but the inexperienced keep going and are punished. Matthew 10, Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd, same word as cunning, as serpents and as innocent as doves. Old Testament scholar Tim Mackey defines this word as to consider things and make great calculated decision to their own advantage. So this serpent has what we might call wisdom. Now, he's going to use it in a pretty nefarious way, but he knows what's up. And at first, the serpent, he doesn't really flat out contradict God, does he? 
Hey, did I hear that God won't let you eat from any of these trees? Question mark. And this inspires Eve to mostly repeat God's command. But she adds to it and she subtracts from it. She says, You're not supposed to, we're not supposed to eat of it or touch it. That wasn't God's command. And then God says, you will certainly die. And Eve leaves out the certainly part. And I think this is a really good picture of two ways that we act and react to the commands of God. Our relationship with God is based on his goodness and grace, on the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. We are adopted in the family of God. But there's still a lot of things that God commands us to do. And we can take a command and we can make it more strict than God did. A command like, do not commit adultery. The marriage relationship is meant to be holy and pure. And then we go, okay, no co-ed roller skating. Why? Because boys and girls might roller skate together and they might bump into each other and then there's hand-holding and from there it's just chaos. And that's funny because most of us don't live with that way, but that, that was a real thing a couple generations ago. Because we know what the clear command of God is, but we're going to add to it to protect ourselves. God said, don't eat from this tree, and we better not touch it either. But then we can also take a clear command and make it less important. The church today, I think, has done this in many ways with regards to divorce. Divorce is a, is a break of the marriage covenant that's supposed to be lifelong, and God is very clear that that's a grave, grievous thing. And we've just kind of decided, you know, half of your marriage is going to fail, so like, whatever, we'll just deal with it. Instead of standing strong on the commands of God. And both of these perspectives take us away from the gospel. God loves the humans. God loves the man and his wife. He is seeking their life and their flourishing. He has invited them to rule and reign with him as he grows them up into creatures fit for that task. And at this point in the story, that's the good news. That's the gospel. God loves you. God made you. God invited you into his world. And his command that comes out of that is meant to be life-giving. Don't eat from that tree. We talked about it a couple weeks ago, but the tree is a, is a stand-in for knowledge and wisdom. And God's saying, there are some things that you're not ready yet and you need me to help you with. Don't go after it on your own. And on the one hand, we focus on being rule keepers. These are the commands of God. I'm going to add some extra commands. Eve says, I'm not just going to keep the command. I'm going to go above and beyond. I'm not even going to touch it. And for those of you that lean this way, you could do two things. You can get proud if you're like a high-performing person and you just start nailing it. Man, I'm so good at keeping God's commands over and over and over. I'm, I'm way better than all these other people. And you get proud. Or maybe you're not as high energy of a person, and you find out that you can't keep God's commands, and then you despair. Maybe you've said something like, man, I know God forgives me, but I, I just can't forgive myself. I just can't, can't do it myself. And, and what, I'm, what you're really saying is, I'm a better judge of goodness than God is. 
But on the other hand, when we downplay the seriousness of God's commands, something else happens. Eve drops the certainly from God's command, phrases it in a way that makes it just a little bit less serious. Yeah, you'll die, I guess. Sin's not that big a deal. Jesus paid for that on the cross. We know that. Everything's going to be fine. I know I, I know I struggle with stuff, but, you know, whatever. And that's a, that's a really hard thing because we want this to be a community where we are open and honest about sin. When I get together with a group of guys and we talk about the things that we struggle with, I want us to be free to go, hey, this was a really bad week because I was doing this and I was doing that and I can't believe I did this and pray for me. But there's a very subtle attitude that can come up in that environment where since we're so open and since we can freely talk about our sin, it must not really be a big deal. But it is a big deal. God says it's a big deal. And our honesty about that should bring us to repentance and turn us away from the sin and not allow us to sit in it. So Eve adds to the command and takes away from the command, and the serpent uses this flexibility in Eve to cause her to doubt. No, that's not what's going to happen at all. You will be like God. The word God here is Elohim, and we've talked about it a little bit. We'll talk about it a lot in in future chapters. Elohim is kind of a category word for beings that live in the heavenly realm. God is called an Elohim. Uh, The angels are called Elohims. There's a lot of different subjects to the word Elohim. And so this might be translated, you will be like God, or it might be the serpent saying, you will be like us. You will be like the Elohim, God's supernatural family. And what that does is it serves to get Eve to think that there are good things that God is keeping from her. And we we get to this place and we say, why won't God fill in blank? Why won't he fix my marriage? Why won't he find me a spouse? Why won't he get me a better job? Why won't he bring my child back to the faith. And if we're not careful, we start to think maybe God doesn't want what's best for us. Maybe he doesn't have the best intentions. But this isn't the picture that we get of God in Genesis. If Eve had given it some thought, she would have recognized that she is in this perfect space She she communes with God. She has a perfect husband. She has all the food she needs. She has a fulfilling job. But in the moment, with the serpent, the message sounds really convincing. Yeah, I I don't have that, and I want it. Why does God not want me to have it? So I want to look at three paths that this temptation goes down. Verse Six, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining 
wisdom. There are three ways that sin will tempt you. First John chapter 2 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So Eve says that, that this fruit is good for food. This is the lust of the flesh. You and I, we have needs. And those needs, they aren't bad in and of themselves. You were made with those needs and you were made to rely on God and his provisions to get those needs fulfilled. This is a picture of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, it's not a very good tool psychologically, but it, it's a good illustration. He's got physiological needs, food and water and warmth and rest and then security and safety and relationship and friends and it goes up the pyramid but these are all things that human beings need. And the lust of the flesh says, God is not going to meet your needs. You have to take care of it yourself. Eve has every possible means to fulfill her need for food. There are probably thousands of trees in this garden. And, and God has invited them to eat freely from them. But she decides, no, I need that fruit. That's what I need. And so for us, what, what is that in our lives? Maybe it's food, but maybe it's just resources more broadly, money, safety, security, control. I have a need for this thing, and it might not be a bad need. It might be a need that should be fulfilled, but it needs to be fulfilled by the Lord in his way, in his time. And we go, yeah, I don't have time for that. I'm going to go do it on my own. Jesus prays and teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, give us today our daily bread. This is such a condensed way of saying God can take care of your needs. He doesn't say give us our bread for the next 30 years in a stockpile somewhere. He says give us our bread today. God can take care of of your needs. But Eve looks at the fruit and she says that, or she sees that it is delightful to look at. This is the lust of the eyes. You and I, we have wants. They may or may not be bad things, but we want them. In the movie The Matrix, uh, when Neo gets pulled out of the Matrix into the real world, he's on the ship with his comrades and they have breakfast. And it's this like sardine can full of this snotty, gross kind of porridge. And he's all, what's this? And they tell him that this has all of the nutrients your body needs to be healthy. And you kind of go, ooh, that's gross. Later on in the film, a character named Cypher, who is one of the villains, is at a restaurant eating a steak. And he says, you know, I know that this steak isn't real, but I don't care. It's so good. And that's the difference between needs and wants. We need something that's nutritionally balanced to make us healthy. We want a steak. I want a steak. I mean, some of you are vegetarians and you want, you want a mushroom burger or something, but, which I love mushrooms too, and no shade on that. Um, <laughs> but, but we have things that we want. 
Maybe, maybe I want to share a bed with that beautiful person, or I want those clothes, or I want that car, or that job, or that Apple watch. I don't need them, but I want them. And it might be a good, it might be a fine want, it might be an awful want. For those of you that are on Instagram, Instagram runs on the lust of the eyes. If every instance of everyone looking at a picture of someone else's life and going, I want that, was taken off of Instagram, they would crumble. That's the point of the platform. Look at what other people have. I want that. If I had that, I would be happy. And in that moment, what I'm believing, what Eve is believing is that God is not glorious to me. God is not holy to me. God doesn't satisfy my want for beauty and love. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. He writes, holiness is a most beautiful and lovely thing. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing, but there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. Edward's friend David Brainerd writes, when I really enjoy God, I feel my desires of him the more insatiable and my thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. What are these guys talking about? Why don't we see the beauty and the glory and the holiness of Christ? Why don't we see this as the ultimate thing that we want? No matter the consequences, no matter the cost, this is what I want. My friend Brandy is allergic to shellfish, and she was talking at our community group last week about how when she was younger, she had a friend who was allergic to dairy, and they would pick one weekend a year where they would clear their calendar, and they would get together on Friday night, and she would eat as much clam chowder as she could, and her friend would just eat as much cheese as she possibly could, and then they would help each other through the side effects throughout the weekend. No matter the cost, this is what will satisfy me. And we think the things that we see in the world are those things, but they end up giving us migraines and diarrhea. <laughs> Jesus is that thing. Eve has been given all the most beautiful things, food, scenery, gold, jewels, rivers, a perfect, sinless husband. More than that, a relationship with the most beautiful, glorious being in the universe. More intimate than anyone in this room has ever experienced. And yet she says, you know what? That fruit looks good. Paul says in Philippians, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him 
and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul says, this is the thing that is good and glorious to me, and I'm giving up everything in pursuit of it. Eve sees that the food is good for, the the tree is good for food, it looks good, and it is desirable for obtaining wisdom. This is pride in one's possessions. Think of it as status in the community, rank among or over others. I don't just want a new car. I want a new car because it will make me look more successful than my coworkers. I don't want to just succeed. I want the person that I know to fail so I will look better. Pride of life is an obsession with your place on the org chart. And what we're saying is that God is not the lens through which I see myself. Instead, I measure my worth by comparing myself to those around me. And this is why I think it's interesting to think of that verse instead of the serpent saying, you will be like God, to read it, you will be like the Elohim. Eve says, I want to be wise. Eve probably didn't realize that she even wanted wisdom until she's in the presence of the serpent who possesses it. I want what you have. I want to be smart like you. Why hasn't God given me that? This is a huge temptation. Comparison for everyone, I think, but comparison in my world is it's huge for pastors. I don't know if you've noticed, but Anthem Church is moving in across the street. They have a very large sign. Chris Laurie is a friend of mine, and he called me a number of months ago and said, hey, we have this opportunity to buy this building. What do you think about that? And I thought two things. The first thing I thought was, no. (laughs) But then when I came to my senses, I thought, man, the gospel is losing ground in downtown Coeur d'Alene. Not in the people, but but actual ground. And, And the church isn't a building, but property is a huge asset that can be leveraged for the gospel. And churches are being turned into other things. They're being torn down. And for Anthem Church to get a building that's on a good piece of property that will serve their needs. They're a beautiful, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered community that they can plant here for generations. Man, yeah, you should do that. Yeah, I'm for that. We're we're here. We rent this building. We love it. But um, yeah, you should totally buy that building. And how can we pray for you? And how can we help? But at the same time, there's that voice in my head that says, I want a building. Well, I, want to, I want to be able to buy a $2 million property. That'd be cool. Why, why does Chris get a 500-person church? <laughs> it's not fair. And that's the temptation, isn't it? That's the temptation to compare who you are based on other people and not who you are in Christ. And it's a distorted orientation. It's like my my daughter Nora standing on a stool and saying, look, I'm taller than you. Well, kind of, but you're also not measuring very well. You're measuring with a faulty yardstick. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, for righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Eve is tempted in these three ways. And in verse 6, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. She gives into the temptation. And then there's the question, well, where's Adam at? And the text tells us he's, he's right there. He's right next to her. And here's, here's the thing. Like, husbands, I believe that we are called to protect our wives from the enemy. I mean, women... Women aren't dumb. There's no theology of like female naivete in this, and I've heard that taught, and it's stupid. But the serpent comes after the woman, and the man is passive. He is standing there. He does not stand up for what he knows is right, and he disobeys God right along with her. And this might just be an interesting anecdote in the story, but in the very next section, which we're going to get to next week, God says what? Adam, where are you? When God shows up to see what's going down, he looks for Adam first. And Hosea in the Old Testament and Paul in the New Testament both reflect on this incident in Genesis 3, and they do not blame Eve. They blame Adam. And I want to say this carefully because there's a lot of like chauvinistic machismo that floats around in the church and there's no place for that here. But husbands, I believe that God will have a talk with us about how we lived with our wives and children in a way that I do not think that our wives will be held accountable. And that doesn't mean that women don't have agency, they're not responsible for their own actions. All it means is then when stuff goes down, God comes looking for Adam, not Eve. And men, that should be sobering for us. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be something that brings us shame and brings us into hiding. That's the work of the enemy. If you hear a voice of shame in your head right now, that's a temptation to shrink into the darkness. What you should be hearing is the voice of the Holy Spirit instilling in you the courage to lead your family well. And I say this as a man who stumbles forward and falls backwards constantly leading my family. But I just, I firmly believe, and you're free to disagree with me, but I just believe that someday me and Jesus are going to have a talk about it. So verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They get the knowledge that they're after, and it brings them shame. 
we see guilt in our lives. And, and, and guilt, um, guilt says, I did a bad thing. But shame says, I am a bad person. Guilt says, I need to hide what I did. Shame says, I need to hide who I am. And this is what we see. They, they recognize that they're naked and they hide themselves from one another. And, and then the next part of the story, they're going to hide themselves from God. Not because they have guilt over what they did. They probably do. But ultimately, they had shame for who they were. Shame brings relational chaos to their relationship as a couple and their relationship with God. And this is the starting point where sin is allowed into the human experience and it infects every human being afterwards. And this is the world that we live in, where our relationships are fractured, we're tempted towards false gods, and so many things are broken. But I don't want to leave us there this morning. I know we're going long, but this is the important part. In Luke 4, we read this. Jesus left the Jordan full, full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was hungry The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The lust of the flesh. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me all will be yours, the lust of the eyes. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, I will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Pride of life. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. See, where our first parents failed and they opened the door for sin and chaos and death to enter our world, where we fail every day and continue to propagate that sin and death, Jesus did not fail. The author of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We can trace the sad state of our world today to Adam and Eve and their failure to trust God for their needs. And we continue to follow in their footsteps. But we can turn, the Bible uses the word repent, and begin to trust in Christ for our identity, for our joy, for our provision, and begin to see the life of Jesus inside us transform us into something new. And the question for all of us this morning is the same as it was for Eve. Who are you going to trust? Maybe you're here and and you're a follower of Jesus and it's just been a, a rough period. 
and you find yourself falling to different kinds of temptation, it's still the same question. Who are you going to trust today? Maybe you need to renew that trust to once again say, I, I'm yours, God, and I want to follow you. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you were invited by a friend and, uh, or you're just checking the church out. Or, or maybe you've been a church person for a long time, but that's not the same thing as being a Christian. It's the same question. Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to give the control of your life over to turn from your sin and to believe that, that Jesus knows what's best for you? That he lived the life that you couldn't live and he died in your place on the cross for the sin and the brokenness and the death that you're experiencing to save you and redeem you from it. And the question is, will you trust him? This is where we're going to end this morning. Next week, we'll take a look at more of the consequences of the couple's sin. Are there, any, are there any questions that we can work through before communion? No text messages. Anybody want to raise a hand and ask one live? It's scary. Okay. It's a heavy, heavy message. Everything's been really good up to this chapter. It's going to get worse. As we take communion together, I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And, and we have the bread and the cup in front of us every week. And I, I, want, to, I want to read you a quote from Alexander Schmemann, who's an Eastern Orthodox priest. He writes, man is a hungry being, but he is hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. It is not accidental, therefore, that the biblical story of the fall is centered again on food. Man ate the forbidden fruit. The fruit of that one tree, whatever else it may signify, was unlike every other fruit in the garden. It was not offered as a gift to man. Not given, not blessed by God. It was food whose eating was condemned to be communion with itself alone and not with God. The life man chose was only the appearance of life. God showed him that he himself had decided to eat bread in a way that would simply return him to the ground from which both he and the bread had been taken. Man lost the Eucharistic life. He ceased to be the priest of the world and became its slave. So we come to the communion table where Jesus has prepared another meal for us. This one, instead of saying, you shall not eat, the command is take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Take and drink from the cup. This is my blood of the new covenant. Instead of Eve giving the food to her passive husband, Christ is our active and sacrificially leading husband giving himself to us. We remember Jesus being tempted but without sin and conquering death by his own death and victory over it. And so as we sing, 
as you take the elements of communion back to your seat, reflect on these questions. How, how are you eating the wrong food right now? Where are you being lured by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? This morning is an opportunity by the grace of God to repent from sin, to know that you are freely forgiven by God's grace, and to eat the food that brings life and displays your trust in Christ. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.